0: Sunday morning in this place. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of this church. Couldn't be more excited that you're uh, here with us this evening, uh, whether you are new or seasoned. Uh, if you don't have a church home, my hope is that you've already begun to experience and continue to experience the love and grace of God as you gather with us in this place this evening. And hopefully that will compel you perhaps to come back as we start the new year, see what God might do in your life as we move into crazy to think about the roaring 20s. Is that not insane? Most of us, as those of you who have been around for the month of December have heard me say on numerous occasions are by and large incredibly familiar with the Christmas story. Shepherds keeping watch of their flocks by night, the no vacancy signs filling the Bethlehem Inn, the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And yet there are aspects of the story hidden underneath the wrapping that show the beauty and wonder of the story for what it is in ways that perhaps we've never considered before. And so in the hopes of having our hearts awaken yet again to the beauty and the wonder of this story of Christmas, we've spent the better part of December in a sermon series entitled Unwrapping Christmas, the goal of which has been to dive into some of the lesser known passages associated with the Christmas story in the hopes that God might break in and break through, revealing to us the wonder of Christmas all over again. This evening, we're gonna do something a little different than anything we've done before, particularly as it pertains to Christmas Eve. We're going to briefly revisit each and every one of those unique aspects of the Christmas story that we spent the month of December exploring. Four incredible gifts that for some will be open for the first time this evening. For others, maybe a revisiting of gifts already unwrapped under the tree throughout the course of this series And with each of these gifts, we're gonna respond with an act of worship appropriate to the gift itself. So here we go, you ready? Part one, Matthew chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The first gift hidden underneath the wrapping of the Christmas story is the gift of Jesus's family tree. One of those so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so passages. This booming declaration that the Christmas story is not some fable. But rather, it's a true story rooted in human history with real names and real places. That if the Christmas story was nothing more than a fable, then the ultimate aim for us would be to figure out the moral of the story, that thing that we might implement in our lives to make our lives better, which would make Christmas ultimately about what you and I do or don't do, the God of the Bible, nothing more than some divine elf on the shelf. Matthew declares something incredibly different, vastly different, namely that there's a difference between the moral of the story and the heralding of the historic. There's the difference between looking for a moral and looking for a hero. That The world says, you've heard me, many of you say this over and over again, that there are naughty and nice people and God loves the nice people, so be a nice person and God will love you. The gospel says something altogether different, that there are no naughty and nice people, only naughty people and Jesus who came to save naughty people like you and me. The Christmas story is the heralding of something true, something that happened outside of us to bring about our rescue from sin and death. It's got all the classic ingredients of of a compelling fairy tale, a king in a kingdom, fire-breathing serpent, a damsel in distress, a dragon-slaying rescuer, and yet it's true And Matthew goes to great lengths to declare this to us from the very beginning of his gospel account so that the genealogy is not the boring part of the Christmas story to be glanced over and moved past quickly on the way to the good stuff. Rather, it declares to us that this story actually happened and is still happening this very night as we gather in this place but it's the truest of fairy tales, making it different from all other fairy tales. A story dripping with God's mercy and grace, evidenced by the many scandalous names that make up Jesus's family tree. From Rahab the harlot to David the adulterer, along with the many wicked kings that followed the split of the kingdom in the wake of Solomon's idolatry. Matthew goes to great lengths to herald this good news that the grace of God in Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover a multitude of sins. That in the words of one scholar, the grace of God is so pervasive that even the begats of the Bible are dripping with God's mercy. Are you a great sinner? Yes, most certainly. Is Jesus a greater savior? Hallelujah. He's the one who brings kings and harlots together around the same banqueting table by his grace. And so the first responsive act of worship that I'd like to invite you into as we respond to this truest of grace-saturated fairy tales is to to bring to the Lord a song of adoration, reminded that Christmas is not the celebration of self-rescue, but rather the celebration of Jesus, our rescuer. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter two, verses one and two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The second gift hidden underneath the the wrapping of the Christmas story, it's the birth of Jesus as seen through the lens of Herod, reminding us that the story of Christmas is not just the story of a coming savior, but a coming king, Herod was a a ruthless man marked by paranoia, a man who trusted no one, including his own wives and sons, many of whom he had put to death for conspiring against him. He was, over the course of time, given more and more power by the Roman Senate, history tells us, and was eventually named King of Judea, King of the Jews, Meanwhile, pagan astrologers from the east who were incredibly familiar with the sacred texts of their day, they see this star rise in the west, likely reminding them of one of the great prophecies of the Torah. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. These, these courtroom magicians and astrologers see a star on the move and it leads them to the city of Jerusalem, to the city of Herod king of the Jews in their search for one born king of the Jews that they might worship him. As you can imagine, their arrival troubles Herod because he knows that there's only room for one king of the Jews. Herod senses a threat to his throne, a threat that must be removed at all costs. Herod reminds us as we read Matthew chapter 2 that we cannot save both our throne and our soul. The one who will save his people from his sins, he's none other than the king of kings and lord of lords, worthy to be praised, like the wise men who fell down before Jesus in a posture of lowliness and laid their treasures at his feet. Gold, a gift fit for a king, reminding us that Jesus is worthy of our glad submission. Frankincense, used as part of temple ceremony, a gift fit for a priest, reminding us that Jesus makes it possible for us to enter into the very presence of God. And myrrh used to prepare bodies for burial, a gift fit for one destined to die, reminding us that those tiny hands were destined to receive the nails of crucifixion, that that tiny head was destined to receive a crown of thorns, that from the cradle to the cross, Jesus was born to die, Savior, and from the cross to the crown, Jesus is worthy of our worship, King so that this evening, we have an opportunity not just to adore Jesus as our savior, but to fall at his feet as the one true king, the one relentlessly committed to prying our heart's grip from lesser things that cannot ultimately satisfy us in doing whatever it takes to make our hearts happy in him. That, that that's part of the wonder of Christmas too, that God will not rest until we find our perfect rest in him. So I would ask this evening, even on Christmas Eve, Especially on Christmas Eve, is there a part of you that comes into this place this evening feeling as though perhaps your kingdom's been threatened by some aspect of the unfolding narrative of your life, of your family, like Herod, perhaps even marked by paranoia and fear? I invite you to respond to the story of Herod, all of us to respond with a brief time of confession as we bring the residual Herod within all of us before the one true king, which I encourage some of us in this room to participate in, in the presence of our children, showing them that confession of sin is part of the wonder of Christmas too as we fall at the feet of our worthy king one more time, a time of confession that the, will then follow with the partaking of the Lord's Supper collectively together as we celebrate the one who ascended first, not a throne, but a cross to die for the Herod in all of us. We receive communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing the shed blood of Jesus. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. Luke chapter one, verses 46 through 49. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. The third gift hidden underneath the wrapping of the Christmas story, it's the gift of Mary's song, a song that's come to be known as the Magnificat, a song of praise from a captivated soul in response to the blessing of bearing the Messiah. What is it that overwhelms Mary's heart and causes her to sing here in Luke chapter 1? Well, for one, Mary stands amazed that God would rescue her from her sins. If God doesn't break through, we're, we're without hope, left in the gloom and darkness of sin's curse, under the yoke of oppression. And that includes even the mother of Jesus herself, who sees herself as just as much a sinner as anyone else. My soul magnifies the Lord, Mary says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Wonder of wonders that, that Jesus would bear the sins of his very own mother someday that if the Virgin Mary saw her own need for a savior, how in the world could we possibly think that the story of Christmas is a story of self-rescue? The Christmas story is a glorious rescue story of divine initiative, that we could never get to God on the basis of our own morality. Praise be to God that he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He came not to condemn the world, but to seek and to save the lost, and that includes Mary. What is it that overwhelms her heart? And causes her to sing for one that God would rescue her from her sins. Wonder of wonders that I'm a Christian. Wonder of wonders that my name is written in heaven. In the words of one commentator, the perennial note of surprise is a mark of anyone who understands the essence of the gospel. So that I would ask this evening, are you amazed this evening that you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, a recipient of God's grace? Mary Uh, Mary's spirit rejoices in God, her Savior, that God would rescue her from her sins. But that's not the only thing that awakens Mary's heart. Secondly, Mary stands amazed that God would leverage her life for his redemptive purposes. That God would rescue me from my sins. Well, that's one thing. That's amazing in and of itself, right? But that God would use me to glorify himself, that's almost too good to be true, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary humbly marvels at a God who would orchestrate his redemptive purposes through lowly people like her. That God didn't just choose lowly Bethlehem to be the birthplace of the Messiah, but lowly Mary to be the resting place of the Messiah. And just like her rescue from sin, God's willingness to leverage her life in his great story of redemption causes her heart to sing, like wonder of wonders, not only that, that God would save me from my sins, but that he would spend me for his glory. So that another question I would ask this evening as we gather together is, do you feel a sense of entitlement as it pertains to your role in God's great story of redemption? Or do you stand amazed this evening that God would give you the honor and privilege of participating in his kingdom work? A God who lays low the proud, a God who brings down the mighty, a God who exalts the humble and fills the hungry with good things. So that the third opportunity to respond this evening as an act of worship, I invite you to respond to the gift of Mary's song with a song of of your own a song of thanksgiving as we sing with our collective voices, hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. With all our hearts, we praise his holy name. We're gonna sing those very words in just a moment. In doing so, I invite you to, to lift up your voice with a fullness of heart that declares wonder of wonders that I'm a Christian this very night as we gather in this place and have been given the privilege of leveraging my life for the glory of this rescuing God. One last gift hidden behind the tree and it's not a red rider BB gun. Luke chapter two, verses 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The fourth gift and the final gift of this evening, hidden under the wrapping of the Christmas story, it's the gift of Simeon's encounter with the newborn Jesus around the time that Jesus was brought to Jerusalem to be dedicated to the Lord. We don't know a lot about Simeon. His life's relatively unknown. We simply know that he was a righteous and devout man who waited expectantly for God to fulfill his promise in the coming of the Messiah. A man not only privileged, privileged to see God's salvation in the face of Jesus Christ, the newborn Jesus, but who held God's salvation in his very arms. A child that he knew was appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Jesus, the stumbling stone. First Peter 2, 8, over whom many will fall. A sword in the soul of Israel, you might say. That the light has come into the world, John 3, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. But notice that Simeon declares not only a a soul-piercing sword for Israel, but for Mary too. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. What kind of sword might it be that would pierce through Mary's own soul in light of the coming Messiah? Perhaps, as scholars have argued, it was the the sword of confusion, which we see in Mark 3, Jesus' family, including Mary, attempting to seize him, not fully understanding his ministry at times, even seeking to obstruct it in certain moments. Perhaps according to other scholars, it was the sword of grief, which we see in John 19 as Mary looked up to the cross and beheld her dying son, questions filling her mind as to how this could truly be the path to glory. I mean, on the one hand, the story of Christmas is the story of a sword removed, the story of Jesus coming under the flaming sword of God's judgment, opening the way back to paradise and ultimately a restored relationship with the living God. We sing it this time of year, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So that I would ask you, have you been reconciled to this God through the sword removing work of the savior, Jesus Christ? On the one hand, Christmas is the story of a sword removed. On the other hand, Christmas is the story of a sword piercing through our own soul like Mary's, teaching us to trust God in the midst of unmet expectations teaching us to look to God in the midst of the waves of grief and sorrow. We're told that Simeon was righteous and devout, waiting on the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. Having suffered greatly for centuries, centuries, Israel was a people in desperate need of comfort and consolation, the kind of comfort that could only come in the coming of Jesus. And some of us are in that place this evening too, even on Christmas Eve. So that I would ask, have you been pierced by the sword of unmet expectations this Christmas season, like Israel all those years? Have you been pierced by the sword of grief and sorrow this Christmas season, like Mary as she stood at the foot of the cross and beheld her dying son? We don't want to pretend that all is merry and bright this time of year. There are some of us who need to hear the invitation to respond to the words of Simeon this evening with a song of supplication as we declare our desperate need for this rescuing God. The story of Christmas is not just the story of a God who reconciles, but a God who consoles, a God who's big enough to handle each and every tear in this room, even at Christmas time, especially at Christmas time. A God who promises to someday wipe away sadness forever and overwhelm us with his comfort for all eternity. Amen and hallelujah. Every soul piercing scar preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. I invite you to stand and respond to this last gift under the tree, so to speak, with a song of supplication as we declare our need for this God who consoles and meets us in even our deepest grief this time of year.